G'day, this is Al Carlson, and I'm kicking on with you on Radio Karam. Keep it locked. So today we have a leading ACL injury researcher with us. Dr. Stephanie Philbay has debunked some of the major misconceptions around non-operative recovery, including disproving suggestions that choosing rehab alone over surgery results in increases in osteoarthritis and meniscal damage, not to mention her recent groundbreaking paper on ACL healing. But before we get into that, I want to take you back to an 18-year-old Steph who's just ruptured ACL and wondered what advice you'd give her. All right. So as sounds like you're aware, I, I did first rupture my ACL when I was 18. Uh, I remember the advice I was given when I first went to see a surgeon. It was um, the first thing he asked was, do I want to return to sport? And I said, of course I do. And he said, well, you know, you don't have to have surgery. If you're happy to run in straight lines for the rest of your life, you could consider just rehab. And I said, well, you know, no, of course, I, I want the surgery. I want to go back to sport. Um, so if I could go back in time, I would, you know, hold myself up at that point and wish that I had someone that sat down with me and and spoke about both treatment options and the pros and cons of each, the likely outcomes and the evidence that was, you know, available at the time. Because, you know, I think I would have, what would have made sense to me, I believe, even back then is trying rehab first with the acknowledgement that, hey, my knee mightn't become stable and I mightn't get the function that I want, which was a really high level of function, and then I might go and have surgery. But at least I would know whether, you know, I could recover naturally from that injury before going down the surgical path. Yeah. Because, yeah, it was quite terrifying. Like as a just turned 18-year-old, I was fairly afraid of surgery. You know, I didn't want to go and and actually have the incisions and get cut open and go into hospital, but I thought that it that I had to really. So, yeah, yeah, and that I, I presume that's what's motivated you into um, the field you're in now, in terms of not only uh, making that information more accessible, but also clarifying some of that information as well. A lot of your research has challenged the um, assumptions that were previously out there. Well, I think so. My PhD initially focused on quality of life after ACL injury and after ACL surgery and looking at ways to improve long-term quality of life because it is poor. So to reduce the burden that the injury is having on people's life, it didn't really set out to, you know, to focus on non-surgical management. But what sort of motivated me more recently is what I'm seeing in terms of misinformation online on um, surgical websites that are educating surgeons or on hospital websites educating patients, as well as research articles that aren't supported by the evidence themselves and recommendations. So it's that mismatch being aware of the literature and the best evidence that we have available and the fact that that doesn't align with what's being told to patients and recommendations that are out there online as well. So it's that, you know, um, inaccuracy that's kind of motivating me to communicate and to do research in this field at the moment yeah that must be incredibly frustrating for you um from both the perspective you've done all a lot of research to disprove uh, and or certainly challenge 
um, a lot of these narratives, but also as a as a patient yourself, it must be very frustrating when you when you see that out there, you know, in some really mainstream um, medical organizations putting out information that isn't substantiated. Yeah, absolutely. We recently did a Australia wide survey of of patients who'd had ACL injury and gone undergone treatment, and as well, we looked at clinicians. But we wanted to know what those patients, it was just under 800 people, had been told by healthcare professionals about their management mm. options. And what we found was that most people received evidence that, uh, sorry, advice that wasn't reflected by the evidence. Mm. And the, the common misconceptions that are still out there, so 90% of patients had been told by a surgeon that if they want to go back to sport, that they should have surgery, that that's the best treatment option. Um, and 60% of physios also told that to patients. Oh, wow. But that, yeah. Yeah, and it's just not reflected in the evidence. It shows no difference in return to sport rates. Yeah. There's no evidence to suggest you're at increased risk of re-injuring your knee. So this common belief that's really persisted, that if you want to go back to sport, you have to have surgery, um, it really influences people's treatment decisions because people that tear the ACL are typically young sport participants, and that's what they care most about. So... Yeah. Um, well, we're both yeah. sat here as as people who have um, <laughs> disproved that. I guess, I guess you. I know you're playing um, a pivoting sport now, uh, and so am I. I've returned to to playing sport. So um, evidence alone, but I know that's not enough. Um, what what do you what do you kind of feel like needs to change out there to really influence that narrative change? Because obviously, you work very closely in the medical industry. But for that message and information to get to patients when they're making that difficult decision, is is there something that can be controlled there or are the influences just too strong? Yeah, so I think it would need to be multifaceted. So first of all, it's educating the clinicians because these are the people who patients see and who advise them about treatment options. So it's educating surgeons, it's educating physios, sports docs and GPs. The next is starting to change public perception because, you know, especially where I live in Australia, everyone thinks if you tear your ACL, you have surgery. And one of the reasons for that is because if we're watching professional sport, Aussie rules football in Australia or rugby, someone does their ACL, the first thing the commentators say is, you know, they've broken their ACL, they're off for surgery to fix it. And then if you're a recreational you know, sport participant and you do your ACL, you think, well, you know, if my sports heroes are having surgery, then I want to have surgery. It must be the best treatment approach. So the way that it's portrayed in the media and um, in relation to professional sport can really impact societal views around it as well. Mm. Um, And then we need to educate patients. Uh, So in order to do that, we need, first of all, to have accurate information that they can access online. At the moment, most information isn't reflected on evidence. So we did actually set out to to do this and we've developed a free online uh, patient decision aid. Oh, Um, Yeah, so the aim of that tool was exactly that, to provide a balanced overview of both surgical and non-surgical treatment for ACL injury and communicating the harms, potential risks of each, the benefits of each and the likely outcomes depending on which treatment approach you go down. Um, And we wanted to do that so that people could make an informed decision about the treatment option that works best for them. So you can find that one. That's on um, 
acljurytreatment.com. Um, and that we intend to be ongoingly updated. So as new evidence becomes available, we'll incorporate that into the actual website itself so it's reflecting the current evidence. Um, and so, yeah, it had quite a thorough development, which was based on large surveys, qualitative, so interview studies, and then a review of the highest level of evidence available in the field that went on to inform that content. And we hope to communicate that in a way that people can understand, not too technical. And yeah, so hopefully resources like that and other resources out there can start to educate patients as well about their treatment options. Yeah, that, that that's incredible. I feel like that's the, that, dare I say, that's what I was missing during during my journey of figuring out what the right things to do is, is to try and find some objective guidance and, and, and know who to trust. Um, I want to talk about the, the elite sports world stuff, but, uh, but I feel like it's a remiss of me not to, to hone in quickly on, I think the paper that, that has really sent shockwaves through the medical industry that, that you led on um, regarding the cross bracing protocol, which showed a 90% plus healing um rate to ACL ruptures, um, which were previously <laughs> deemed in, in many quarters um, unhealable. The impact um, has, be, has been pretty pretty big, like we don't see much, certainly not change in this space recently. But have you, how's, how's the reaction been like for you? Were, were you surprised by, were you expecting it to be bigger and that suddenly people are, are transforming the way that they operate? Or have you been kind of pleased that some people and and certain areas are starting to to listen now yeah i think the interest but also the acceptability around this new idea that actually not only can the acl heal but appears to heal at a much higher rate than we thought possible um so the first paper where we looked at data in the canoon trial um which was published just before the second paper um, that showed that at least one in three people had ACL healing on on a two-year MRI when managed with rehabilitation. So this was with no bracing at all. Um, so that was really surprising. And then in that study, we found that those with healing on MRI reported better outcomes at two years, not only compared to those without healing, but they also reported better outcomes compared to those who'd had ACL surgery. So that was really interesting and a surprising finding. Um, and that's sort of led into this bracing protocol. But what we have seen, we've seen a lot of media interest. We've seen a lot of patients reaching out. Um, you know, I've received over 200 emails now from people all around the world saying, I found this paper, I've told my ACL, can you help? I don't want to have surgery. Mm. I want to try this bracing treatment. And a lot of clinicians reaching out as well, um, physios, sports doctors and some surgeons who've seen the research and are really interested and want to get involved. So even before this uh, research, which was published in the, you know, this year, both of these studies, we already knew that management with rehabilitation alone and considering surgery down the track compared to early reconstructive surgery has similar outcomes. So that surgery has no additional benefit over initial rehab. So we've known that for some time based on clinical trials. Hmm. But it really hasn't changed practice in a lot of parts of the world. Uh, you know, 
in Australia, the vast majority of people are still having surgery. I think the way that we used to present that, where we talk about being able to cope without an ACL if you if you have rehab, it's not a very attractive option for patients. You know, I don't want to have to cope without one. I want to go get it fixed with surgery is how a lot of people would see it. But I think people can understand, oh, hang on, the ligament can actually reconnect and potentially heal. That makes more sense. It's a more viable and attractive alternative to surgery, I think, for people, knowing that, that there's that potential there. Um, so, yeah, we are seeing a lot more um, buy-in and, and desire to access, access this treatment than we've seen with other non-surgical treatments. Yeah. I think Mick Hughes put it really well when he said, um, the non-optive is kind of suitable for people who are comfortable in the grey rather than the black and white, whereas what this is giving us is a definitive situation for people where they go, yeah, my ACL is healed, I'm good to go again, whereas for people um, functioning with a ruptured ACL and no idea whether they're it has healed because a, a repeat MRI isn't available to people unless they want to uh, pay up for it, um, is is ambiguous and uh, and... You never, I guess, you, you're operating in, in a bit more unknown than you would anyway. But, I mean, you walk onto a, a football pitch or um, any type of sporting arena and there's an unknown there anyway. So that's the way I've kind of um, framed it. So for people that that don't achieve that healing, like with, or you do have a repeat MRI and you haven't had healing, we're not saying, well be great to get your perspective on whether at that stage you go well maybe you should have surgery or if you're coping fine um and i don't i don't, I don't really like the term conservative because it does feel like you know you just you're not doing as much anymore where really for me my understanding is the rehab is pushing your body to a new level of strength and capability to function without the acl um intact so still the I guess still your advice, go back to 18-year-old Steph. Um, she's had a repeat MRI and she's not had healing. Would you say, well, if your body's still doing fine, still keep going and, and only have surgery if your knee then gives away? Yeah, so absolutely. I would be in tune and listen to my knee in terms of its function. And what we mean by function, the most important thing there is stability so is that knee stable because we don't want to cause extra damage to the knee we don't want to sort of go on and damage the meniscus or the cartilage so we don't want to be um, just putting up with a wobbly unstable knee that's giving way absolutely not so the first sign that this knee is not going to have a successful recovery that's when I suggest it's a really good idea to consider surgery and go and see a surgeon um, not five years later where the knee's given way 10 times and you've caused further damage to the knee. Mm. Um, this was the criteria that we used historically when we thought that ACLs didn't heal. So we, we knew that at least 50% of people would not need surgery if they try rehabilitation and start with rehab. And one of the key indications for an unsuccessful outcome was the knee giving way or being unstable. But now that we've got this research showing that the ACL can heal or resume continuous fibres, so the fibres can rejoin as seen on MRI, is it that actually those who have this unstable knee don't have healing of the ACL and that's why 
they didn't regain a, a degree of knee stability. Uh, we don't know, but, you know, my intuition suggests that healing may have, you know, maybe the missing piece of the puzzle to mm. determine why people, some people do really well and others really don't do well when they're treated with rehabilitation. With with that instability, is is that testament, obviously once someone gets up, you know, if they haven't got knee stability, we try and, you try and rehab that. Is it is it a case that you get your, you know, your quad strength back to within 90 above 90 percent of what of what it was previously and then um and obviously the, the the supporting muscles around it and at that point if you're still experiencing stability that that's when you consider surgery because because i guess mm. the risk is that people suffer a knee injury and then they mm. experience significant kind of um, muscle loss that yes their knee's going to feel unstable but that might be because the muscular structure around it's not really doing its job and and they could still rehab it to the point where um regardless of, of healing or not that they can get back to the stage of of it being a a back to usable knee and functioning well without risking um that additional damage that might come from trying to do certain activities without having um the muscular integrity restored yeah so it's it's having sufficient function to do what it is you want to do Mm. um so for people that say don't play cutting jumping and pivoting sports and don't really have any desire to you know you it's possible that your knee might feel unstable if you went and played a game of soccer but that's not something you want to do and that actually your function sufficient to do the kinds of activities that you want to do so in those cases um you know as long as you're avoiding any activities that may cause your knee to give way, then that can be safe as well. Mm. Um, but you're right. So earlier on, the very, you know, the the characterization of having an ACL rupture is that your knee will be unstable. But what we're suggesting is that with time, your knee, if you're going to have an ideal outcome, will regain stability. Yeah. And it may take, you know, at least three months so it doesn't happen overnight in five days. Um, and there's other things that might feel like your knee gives way, like when your knee buckles because you have a bit of swelling in the knee. It can cause the quads don't function properly when there's a bit of a fusion in the knee and then you might be going up and down a stair and your knee sort of buckles beneath you. That's not what we're talking about. When What we're talking about is typically rotational instability where it, you know, it, it grossly gives way and causes you to often fall to the ground. Yeah. Um, so that's why you need a, a really good physiotherapist and hopefully they're supervising you and progressing you through achieving different goals of rehab. And then they should know that despite progressing in your strength and your function and having sufficient uh, strength, your knee's still not stable. It's not mechanically stable. Um, so hopefully a good physio could make that differentiation. And before you go to sport, hopefully they're doing quite extensive return to sport testing. Yeah. So you, you really should have tried all the sorts of um, tasks that you'll be doing during sport in a safer environment first to ensure your knee and your strength and your function is ready um, and can can uh, perform under those conditions before you go and actually play a, a competitive match, for example. Yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking uh, my question probably was, wasn't very directly worded, but but the appropriate time to make that decision because time is an important yeah. thing for a lot of people, particularly in you know we're talking about the importance to lead from 
the elite athletes and their decision-making processes are what going to trickle down off often. And do they want to spend three months trying something without exposing the knee to any sort of structural risks and then find when they do return to training that their knee isn't stable and then they've not wasted because we know the value of um, doing rehab before surgery. But just think about that that, yeah. that conviction in, in decision-making processes and the importance for, for, for athletes. Yeah, I mean, I think three months is a good minimum window um, mm. because we used to think before we considered healing, we used to suggest trying rehab for at least three months before making a decision. Yeah. But now that we are looking at healing an MRI, three months is early enough to see if there will be a degree of healing. Mm. So we can already see the, the ligament fibres have reconnected by three months. So the ligament doesn't look completely normal by three months. It's still undergoing, you know, uh, a healing process at that yeah. point in time. But it seems to be early enough to see if there'll be any healing or no healing. Yep. So that, um, that, so that three months time point, yeah. That's as early as you'd put in because people obviously, you know, people are getting surgery almost the next day in, in instances because they think, well, the quicker I get surgery, the quicker I can get that graft in, the quicker that graft starts to... Um, build its its strength and stability and the quicker that's going to be ready to return to sport because for an elite athlete right they're going to be able to do their rehab in in six to nine months because they're going to be in the gym pretty much every day unlike us average people who could would benefit maybe more from that three-month head start i'm just trying to i'm just trying to think from you know really from that elite perspective what's really because what i hear for from people and playing devil's advocate as they say um oh, well, that's a wasted three months that they could have mm. been post-operative and healing. And those are the questions yeah. I guess people are going to ask when considering yeah. this. Yeah, so a few things I'd consider there. So uh, I agree one of the main downsides to non-surgical rehab is the uncertainty in knowing will I end up having surgery or will I have a successful outcome? And then that can if you go on to have surgery, that could delay it by, let's say, three months or even longer, right? Could delay your total recovery time. However, if you are successful, your rehab time can be shorter um, and you can return to sport faster. So it's a pro and con on each side. It's not a clear-cut decision there. On the other hand, we need to acknowledge that uh, only 55% of people return to competitive sport after surgery. A lot of people have poor long-term outcomes. And then of most concern is the risk of graft rupture. We know that that's highest in young people and young people returning to sport. So if you go on to re-tear your graft after surgery, you are in a really poor position. You're likely to have very poor outcomes, including osteoarthritis, chronic pain, poor quality of life um, at that point in time, and 90% injure their meniscus and cause further damage to other structures at that point. Hmm. So I think if you are someone to have a, a successful recovery with rehab or with the brace you and have healing, you're not then at risk of, yet at risk of being in that position of graft rupture, which we really do want to avoid for people. Yeah. And in professional athletes, you know, the risk of rupturing grafts is really high. Um, they perform for a shorter duration than their non-ACL um, injured peers. Um, so they often don't return to have as, as great a longevity in their sporting careers after surgery. So 
Um, I don't know. I don't think it's as clear cut as we think. People often think of surgery as a sure thing or a fix, but it isn't. And there's additional trauma that's caused to the knee during surgery, um, which you can avoid if you do have a successful management without surgery. So, yeah, so the main con of, of non-surgical approach is the unknown as to whether surgery might be recommended for you down the track. Yep. But the pro is avoiding surgery potentially, but also time-wise maybe being able to return earlier if you do experience healing and a, and a um, yeah, I mean, because the return to sport guidelines, obviously we need more evidence around returning to sport after natural healing. But we know that uh, the ACL graft still appears to be undergoing ligamentization as far as two years after oh, wow. surgery. And, it, yeah, so we really don't know the timelines yeah. of of the ligament uh, healing and remodeling over time, but the graft also needs to do so. You know, it's generally tendon that's put in there. It's not actual ligament yeah. tissue. Yeah, so that can never to, re reach yeah. the full strength and 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 size of a ligament, right? So it's the important message that you you're putting out there, which I'm I'm fully aware of as someone who's who's been through the surgical pathway, is that it's it's not a silver bullet, and there are a lot of complexities to surgery. So um, as much as naysayers might pick holes in the the neuroactive and the healing, um, or be uncomfortable with any ambiguity well you've really got to balance that with the challenges that the surgery faces in terms of finding your 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 best pathway for a for a for a patient yeah and it should be the patient's decision right so mm. if they say yeah so if they say oh so i could try rehab for let's aim for three months and then see where my knee's at and you know there's a maybe at least a 50 percent chance that i'll avoid surgery mm. altogether some people will be like, I'd love to take that chance. Yeah. I'd love to try that first. And others may be like, no, look, I'd prefer just to go straight for surgery. Yeah. So, But people need accurate information so they can make that informed decision themselves, which most people aren't receiving at the moment. So. Yeah. Yeah, I love that, that simple way of, of framing it for people. Um, are you aware of any elite athletes that are currently considering or, or trying the cross bracing protocol so that research has come out and it's had a few months to, to, to settle. Um, so it'd be interesting to know if, if, if there is anyone out there, um, looking at giving it a go. Yeah. So, um, at the moment there's over 12 elite professional athletes that have undergone the bracing protocol. Um, so that includes things like, uh, international rugby players, Mm. Olympic ju judo athletes um, that had successful heels and returned to sport. So we are going to see that number still to be quite small because they have so many other yeah. pressures on them and it's often not their decision to make. You know, it's often their medical team and their sporting clubs and other people that are often driving these decisions. Mm. Um, but in saying that, the majority of people that have undergone the brace are competitive athletes that are taking part in, you know, Aussie rules or rugby, soccer at a high level, but not professional. Right. And and there's no reason why professional athletes, I mean, if anything, they tend to receive so much rehab support. You know, they can focus on their rehab all day, every day. Yeah. that it only is likely to improve their outcome with any treatment approach they go down. Yeah. 
Um, so, yeah, but I think it's more going to be certain professional athletes that we see who are asking or demanding certain treatment approaches rather mm. than it, it coming down through management, for example, because we've had a strong surgical bias in sports medicine for a long time. And it's typical that an athlete gets referred straight for surgery. It could be a foot injury, an ankle injury, shoulder, uh, even spine, knee, and that would be the typical treatment. They go and have orthopedic surgery as quick as they can, you know. So Yeah. And because they're whether, exposed yeah. to such high sorry, <laughs> because they're exposed no. to such high quality rehab, that's probably got yeah. more to do with their successful outcome, right? Than which decision they would have made anyway. Like the way I see it, ultimately the quality of your rehab that you put in has overriding importance than whether you have surgery or not. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's why we we really need to understand this role of healing Mm. um, because it's a little more complex. It's not as simple as healed or or not healed. Mm. You know, when we say 90% had healing after this brace, what that means is, um, before they had the brace, the ACL was completely torn. So you can see a gap between the two ends of the ACL, completely ruptured. And then after undergoing the brace, that ACL had rejoined. So now the fibres are continuous from where they begin to where they end. But amongst those, so that's 90% that had a continuous ligament at, at three months. But amongst those more than half um, were really normal appearance or it may be slightly thicker still by three months than a normal ACL, but uh, normal tightness. And then just under half are slightly thinner or they could look a little elongated, so a bit longer than usual. Mm. So those that had a normal appearance or thicker were doing better than those who were a little bit thinner or elongated at three months. Um, so we know that when you get this normal appearance heal, it's definitely a really good thing. But what we don't yet know is when it's a bit longer or it's a bit thinner, how does that compare with an ACL graft? Uh, we don't know yet. Uh, do these people have good knee function to return to sport? It seems a little bit more mixed in those people with that heel. Um, some people function great and others will go on and have surgery. So we're trying to understand now, you know, what what uh, elements of healing that we see on MRI strongly relates to the ideal knee function that we're trying to achieve. Yeah. I, I listened to um, one of your uh, um, podcasts that you recorded talking about the, the results of that and how you looked into it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we've returned to sport rates. The, kind of, the question was up about the timeframes and stuff and, and, and you were very cautious saying about we don't want to rush people back because actually when we saw from the results, I think, was it four people re-injured? But they yeah. were, but, and I was like, this is so, un- sounds so unlucky because all four of them were from heavy contact injuries. Whereas obviously we know the, particularly the, any ACL susceptibility is majority injuries are non-contact. So really hard to tell whether they would have, you know, regardless of what their ligament was at that stage, whether it's a healed one, their original ligament, a graft, it's kind of impossible to know whether those injuries would have occurred either way, right? Yeah, so those four people, that was in the 
in those people that had the thickened norm, mm. but normal appearance, so the more ideal hill. Yeah. Yeah, and two of them were high-velocity, high-speed accidents, falling off a bike and other unlucky things. And the mm. other two had returned to sport early, earlier than was advised, mm. um, and it was a rugby tackle or an Aussie rules tackle. Yep. So the thing is 92% of those people had returned to their pre-injury sport by 12 months. So that's a much higher percentage than we see after surgery, yep. which is on average 55%. Um, and the number one risk factor for tearing your graft after surgery is returning to competitive sport. Yep. So they are going to be exposed to those same demands, those same situations to which the same risk to which their ACL initially ruptured in. So we need to kind of keep that in mind. If the return to sport rate's really high, we are going to see some ACL uh, re-ruptures. Yeah. But what we really need, we need longer-term data. So there's now been, um, as of today, uh, this morning, number patient number 518 was braced. Um, and so now we're starting to collect the data for a larger number of people. And we'll also start to look at long-term follow-up data so we can understand things like re-rupture rates after undergoing the bracing protocol and in those um, with ACL healing. But we need to acknowledge that, you know, we don't have the long-term follow-up data yet to get the full picture around uh, healing of ACL with the, the brace. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very much focused on, you know, help, helping patients make the right decision here and uh, an informed one at least um i wanted to quickly talk to you about kind of the the financial driving factors I and mean, we've kind of um touched on a little bit there the incentives that are driving probably lack of progress in um in change in you know in australia we've got the one of the highest um surgical post acl rupture um rates in the world um whereas you know other countries particularly in scandinavia they're close to maybe 50 percent whereas in australia i think it's above 90 percent of people who are having an acl rupture uh, going under the knife um on on the flip side of that in terms of you know what's really going to encourage people to um from a high level to change um this i wouldn't say culture but this 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 approach um is saving that money right and, and that money's not Sometimes it's coming out of the patient's pockets, but often, um, it, particularly in the in the UK, it will be funded by the NHS. A lot of these operations. Has has there been any research into if we could reduce those um, rates of people having surgery? What kind of financial savings that would result on? You know, a lot of governments under financial pressure and and strain and uh, and struggling to fund health services. Um, is there any research on like the the benefits that that would have if we weren't mm. putting people on the knife potentially unnecessarily? Yeah, so we're actually designing that study at the moment. Um, so it hasn't run the analysis yet, but mm. hopefully you might see that come out in 2024 yeah. in terms of the potential cost savings. Um, the best data we have around the comparison of cost or cost effectiveness is from the two clinical trials comparing early reconstruction with initial rehab. Mm. And both of them found that surgery was not cost effective compared to initial rehab. So there was, you know, a cost saving for doing rehab first. Yeah. So no brainer, um, right? Like, you, you, yeah. Particularly if you are returning, you know, I was 
um, kind of cleared for sport after five months compared to nine months of or t- 12 months of physio from that alone you're saving money as a as a patient um and then the surgery costs yeah but uh, you know as an individual patient so that's like at a societal level yeah. um that we consider cost savings but for the individual patient mm. you've got i try rehab and it may end up being much lower cost than surgery if i have a successful outcome but if I go on to have surgery, I'll pay for the surgery, the post-surgical rehab, plus the window of rehab that I do first. Mm. So that's sort of the risk is, you know, those physio consults, whether it's once a fortnight for three months potentially, you know, so that additional cost of those consults. So there's a chance that you'll have a saving if you have a good outcome. But if you go on to have surgery, then those costs will add on. So it's still weighing up the pros and cons of that. If you have private health insurance that covers surgery, the, the cost and out-of-pocket cost is much lower. But if you don't, so in Australia, um, people typically go onto a, a public wait list. Hmm. Um, in Melbourne, where I'm based, some of the hospitals have a wait list for ACL surgery of 18 months long at the moment. And I spoke to a physio working in a regional area and he said it's two to three years wait. Oh, wow. For an ACL surgery. And these people are receiving nothing typically while on the wait list. I was going to so say, they're not you'd, you'd hope at least they'd be using the opportunity to go, well, let's try and try and rehab you then. Because if, if the waiting list is that, that was one of the motivations for me was hearing there was at least like four to six weeks of even seeing an orthopedic surgeon. Um, but yeah, crazy that people are, are waiting that time. Mm. but they're not trying um, or not being advised because it's definitely not their fault if they're, you know, facing the narrative of, of you're not until you have a surgery, you can't do anything but walk in a straight line. Um, But yeah, that's, that's, that's incredible. Um, And from a kind of, you know, a public health perspective, obviously those numbers would, would add up pretty significantly if, if they are being funded. Yeah. So we are planning to, randomised controlled trials to evaluate this bracing protocol. Mm. So one that we're planning will be in a public setting. So it will capture people that are going onto that wait list and randomising, you know, half of them to this bracing protocol. And the other half would have their usual care whilst on the wait list. Um, That would be an interesting design because we can compare healing between those two groups, between a group doing a brace and a group doing essentially nothing or maybe some rehab. But we can also compare surgical rates, assuming that a lot less people would would need or go on to have surgery if they do have this bracing treatment early. Mm. Um, The other trial we're planning would be in a private sector, and it's comparing ACL reconstruction with the bracing protocol. So I think both those trials are really needed, um, and they would complement each other in terms of the information that's provided. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to think of the right word for this, and you'll definitely know. Um, but ultimately, is is the study that we need a um, kind of a, a fake surgery one where people think they've had a reconstruction because people report yeah. better outcomes, right? Because they think they've had an intervention. This is the same with the placebo yeah. effect, right? Is that exactly what? so? A placebo surgical trial. Um, that would be right. like okay, <laughs> ethically, <laughs> exactly. That would be so hard to yeah. do, but it would be so important and meaningful if someone yeah. could. I mean, I think it would have to be done in in 
Scandinavia or Finland or somewhere where mm -hmm. there's a society where um, altruism is really high in relation to research and people are happy to enter these placebo yeah. trials and they have done for other surgeries um, at high rates because there's a society where, you know, people are happy to put their hand up for studies like this. Mm. I think it would be really difficult to do it in Australia or some other places. Um, but the Not thing is, right, that. so... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, the ideal, okay, so the ideal placebo re, ACL reconstruction trial, you'd have one arm that go and have the normal surgery and then you'd have another arm that has all the same surgical components except the component that we think actually um, is contributing to the mechanism of the surgery, which is the graft, right? So what they'd have the incisions they potentially even have, have drill holes in their bones. drilling exactly drilling yeah, holes wow. in the bones <laughs> maybe putting screws well but you probably want to leave the actual ruptured acl there because yeah so it's it would be quite complicated mm. and it would still cause a lot of undue trauma to the knee so it would be ethically very hard to get people to consent to a study like that yeah. for that reason yeah for less invasive surgeries um it works a bit more easily, like um, the meniscus placebo trials that have been performed, because let's say you're having your meniscus resected or cut away, um, then they make the incisions, but they don't touch the meniscus versus they make the incisions and trim the meniscus away. When you wake up from those surgery, you can't really tell the difference about what's been mm. done in the knee. So that's easier to design in the placebo manner. Um, so that study exists and they found that those having the real surgery had no additional benefit over the placebo. Yeah, wow. And, and we often find that for a lot of these surgical procedures. So it's, They did it for tennis it's, elbow, it's, yeah. right? Was that one of those that they proved that it was based, or there was no benefit to having surgery for tennis elbow? Mm, yeah, and that, yeah, meniscus as well. It's, yeah. That's one of the key trials. Relevant, but, um, yeah. And... Uh, I think there's a shoulder debridement surgery as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a few different. They're really hard to do, right? They're really hard to recruit into, to design, but super important and interesting. Um, and so it's just acknowledging that surgery itself has a huge placebo effect and there's a lot of contextual factors around it, as you can imagine. Mm. You know, you're being put to sleep thinking my knee's going to be fixed and you're woken up thinking it's it's fixed and it's recovered. That's that placebo effect. It's not to be underestimated because it's still a, a real effect. It, it still can have a real effect on your perceived outcome. Um, it's just that some surgeries may not be working for the reasons that we thought they may yeah. be having benefit for a lot of people. If that makes sense. Yeah. So. Oh, but belief belief is so huge, right? Yeah. I was watching a a Louis Farouk documentary. He's reviewing his previous um, kind of his early series and he said i don't believe in god but i believe in religion because the power of belief supercharges turbocharges human beings to do stuff that they couldn't do otherwise and, mm. uh, and it's so true if you if you're stood there on a training field and everyone's saying to you oh shouldn't you've had surgery are you okay oh i, I won't tackle mm. you you're going to feel mm. weak and vulnerable whereas people see you back and you've done what you expected and they've seen you rehabbing hard for a whole 12 months and you're back and you're stronger than ever and you, you believe that and you, your body's going to reflect that in its performance, I imagine. Absolutely. And we find in multiple studies that one of the main predictors of a surgical outcome is someone's expectation to do well. And that's even the case if that's considered an unrealistic expectation. 
So they expect to be running a marathon or doing brilliantly after a joint replacement. Those people do better than those that expect a, you know, a less positive outcome. Yeah. So why is that? Is it belief or is it also touching on people's personality types in relation to optimism, uh, resilience? Are these people with, you know, uh, positive expectations, they expect to do well, to bounce back, and they're more likely to do so? Uh, don't know. But, yeah, it certainly seems to be an important part of the picture. Yeah, but makes so important what you're providing in terms of, you know, helping people not just see the other side, but really make a yeah. decision with conviction. Um, I want to just finish on um, one final question. Really appreciate your time and, and some absolute invaluable insight in there. I know I'd have loved to listen to this um, when I was going through the decision-making process. Um, but I wanted to get from you a sense of, you know, get, given the, the research you've conducted and, and, and the stuff you're going through at the moment, if we we started by kind of taking a time machine going back to when you're 18 and you rupture ACL, I want to fast forward now and go f- forward to 10 years in the future and where you'd like to see the sector sat up based on the evidence that's out there. Mm, um, again, it's, a, it's a enabling an informed decision. And to do that, it's providing accurate information about treatment options. And so it's, that would have to come from both online resources but also the clinicians they see. So we know there's surgeons out there that provide excellent information and a really balanced overview of treatment options. But there's others that are providing unbalanced and non-evidence-based information. And the same applies for physios. We see mixed in terms of what people are doing. So, yeah, in an ideal world, I'd like it to be for patients to receive more accurate information so they can make informed decisions. And it's a little bit tied in with referral pathways and other things, certainly in Australia. Um, For example, if you have to go and see a GP to get imaging or rebated imaging and then the GPs refer on to a surgeon and then you're told you need surgery and booked in for surgery before even hearing that non-surgery is an option, um, so the kind of ways that our healthcare systems are set up and the, the people that they require you to see and the order in which they require you to see them, it can all impact on the kind of um, decision we make and information we receive. So, yeah, I'd like to see more of a change, more education of clinicians and public so that more informed decisions can be made about treatment options. Hi everybody, this is Wit from Spiderbait. When I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisce about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel alright Don't worry about a thing Because Atticus Health will make you feel alright If you got a tummy ache or you don't feel right 
Or if you have a nasty rash, keeping you up at night. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry. Because Atticus' health will make you feel alright. 